Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Theolyn Arduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and I'm joined by Lucy Dallas, our arts editor. Lucy, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. I'm looking at dark black clouds uh, outside, but never mind. Yeah, same here, same here. Lovely, isn't it? It's just a lovely July in in England. (laughs) Last week, I said something quite daft. I said that we can only choose two or three pieces to cover on the podcast, which leaves about 80% of that week's TLS still to discover, which is nonsense. It suggests, and my old maths teacher, Mr. H, if he's listening, I'm sure he sighed heavily at this point, that would suggest that the TLS only runs 10 articles, which obviously is not true. So now that that public self-flagellation is out of the way, uh, Lucy, (laughs) we have chosen our pieces to discuss this week. Uh, What else shall we flag from the issue? Do you mean from the issue which carries 40 to 50 pieces every week, Thea? That is the issue that I mean, Lucy Dallas. Why, thank you. Oh, OK. Uh, well, we're, <laughs> we're doing quite a lot about music this week and it being Beethoven's 250th birthday. Not yet. We're a bit early. His actual um, birthday is in December. And we've got an extract from a wonderful book about Beethoven by Laura Tunbridge, who's written for us before. And the bit that we've chosen is focusing on the influence on his work and his life of friendships and also the Kreutzer Sonata and how that was first performed. And an interesting fact was that it was dedicated to Kreutzer, who was a violinist, Um, but it wasn't Kreutzer who premiered it, performed it for the first time. That was a guy called George Bridgetower. But I think Beethoven fell out with him a bit later. Anyway, he dedicated it to Kreutzer and Kreutzer said, sort of accepted the dedication, but apparently he didn't really like Beethoven's music and never played it. So there you go. The <laughs> other... Charming. Yeah. Charming. And he couldn't take it back. I don't think he wanted to because Kreutzer was pretty famous. So I think it was, you know, it was kind of good for him. Um, it served its purpose. And the other, the other, I mean, there's lots of good music stuff, but one of the other things that stuck out was it was a jazz musician called Adrian Rollini, who was the master of the bass saxophone. But he also played the hot fountain pen, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's a sort of little clarinet, apparently. And the goofus or quesnophone, which it turns out is those little keyboardy things that you blow into. 
Oh, yeah. Is that what they're called? Well, not really. This was a particular sort of it. That could be what they're called. So you could, if you were in a band, I, I could say, and this is Thea Lenarduzzi on Goofus. Well, let's work thought. towards making that a reality. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds brilliant. I haven't read that piece, so I will catch up with that. I really enjoyed Laura Thompson's review of the Max Stone Graham book, British Summertime Begins. And I think this is possibly because, as we mentioned, storm clouds are are gathering or have in fact gathered and, and it's it's absolutely lashing it down where I am. But it's an oral history of the summer holidays. And I mean, the summer holidays, you know, not summer holidays in going to foreign countries, the summer holidays, the seemingly interminable stretch of time between school years. Uh, and it just sounds like it captures so fully that sense of boredom and languor, often mischievous boredom, the kind of boredom that is filled by and there's this lovely little glimpse that we get in the conversation with some octogenarian women in a Lancashire mill town and they describe how they used to sit on the roof in the gutters popping tar bubbles raised by the heat of the sun you can almost smell it brilliant and also I know what you mean about boredom and creative boredom but also freedom yeah and also when you're little especially the smaller you are it just seems to stretch out forever yeah your experience of time is completely different Mm. yeah I yes Actually, that what's one of the odd things about now is that there is very little boundary between school and work and home and all of that. So well, it's, it's, it's difficult to get a sense of the summer holidays. It's true. Well, on a completely different note, it is a while since we have had word of literary pets. I think mention of a colossal carp called Clarissa a few weeks ago might have thrown everyone somewhat. But we do have news this week of a discerning dog, the beautiful Golden Evie who her owner, Barbara Tropp, tells us likes to retrieve the TLS from the doormat and deposit it in her bed, (laughs) which I suspect has as much to do with the potato starch wrapper that we use to put the paper in as it does with the peerless range and quality of the writing therein. I think Evie is clearly, uh, as you said, a very, very discerning hound. She really is. I wish I could say that Alf does the same when I receive um, the TLS, but he doesn't. He sort of looks at it and sometimes if I leave one within reach he just shreds it I'm afraid (laughs) he's a critic everyone's a critic he's a harsh harsh critic he really is um any more literary pets from anyone please send them my way or anything else you'd like to share really I miss I miss hearing where people are when they listen to the show so if you're walking the dog in Austin or hanging the washing out in Skipton let us know if you're on Twitter get me on Thea underscore Linarduzzi or email me at the TLS thea.linarduzzi at the hyphen tls.co.uk. And if, like Evie, you crave a weekly fix of the TLS, I encourage you to try subscribing. Here is an offer. Go to the TLS website and use this special offer code, the hyphen tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer and you will receive six issues for five pounds or five dollars now on this week's episode in april 1939 the black contralto marian anderson stood in front of the lincoln memorial and performed to a crowd of about 75,000 people carol j oger has delved into a recently recovered archive of documents that shed light on the twists and turns behind this moment when the history of american civil rights intersected with that of classical music And Jeff Dyer joins us to tell us why Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry was one of the most memorable reading experiences of his life. A taster from his essay. I was not reading a book, he says. There was no book and no reader. There was just this world, this huge landscape, and its magnificently peopled emptiness. 
This week, the novelist, critic and essayist Jeff Dyer shares with us one of the most remarkable reading experiences of his life, the discovery of Larry McMurtry's epic novel of the American West, Lonesome Dove. He discusses why he first didn't read it, then why he did, and then what he made of it. I have to say that after reading his piece, I immediately ordered the book and then devoured it, so be warned that his enthusiasm and evangelism is infectious. As he says, it became clear that the book inspired something more akin to faith than admiration or love. People hadn't just read the book, they had converted or pledged allegiance to it. And here he is with us now. Jeff, many thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be talking about this. <laughs> Me too. Can you can you tell us, first of all, just how you came across Lonesome Dove? Uh, yeah, and, you know, more generally, I think this is something that's always uh, of interest. That is to say, the path that leads you to a book. Of course, if it's a newly published book or if you're reviewing it, then that question is not interesting at all. But I think it's especially interesting with a book that almost disappeared from sight and maybe there are only one or two writers that have kept the path. In the case of Larry McMurtry, though, it's a book with a hefty reputation. Uh, it won the Pulitzer Prize and it was also made into a very, very uh, successful, highly regarded miniseries. I was vaguely aware of it, and I was made particularly aware of it in the depths of my Cormac McCarthy intoxication, when an American agent, actually, Eric Simonoff, said to me while I was in the midst of this McCarthy mania, had I read Lonesome Dove? And of course I hadn't, because Lonesome Dove was just a sort of rather lower form of entertainment than Cormac McCarthy. I said that even though I had no basis for thinking it. And then, OK, many years passed and I ended up teaching in Texas. And then as a result of that experience, I read this whopping great history of Texas by Stephen Harrigan. And in that book, he mentions Larry McMurtry and... Various other things meant that just before the lockdown, I decided, OK, well, let's let's have a go at, uh, at Lonesome Dove. I'm at the point now that you say that you were at in, in the 1990s where you'd read Cormac McCarthy, you'd read Blood Meridian and all the pretty horses and you'd been completely swept away by it. And then you have this friendly intervention. Was it some loyalty or sense or devotion to McCarthy that made you wait, what, 20 years before you finally got to Lonesome Dove? Yeah, I should stress I wasn't locked into some insanely monogamous relationship <laughs> with McCarthy where I, I would only read one book every five years or something. In fact, when No Country for Old Men came out, I mean, that really brought to an end my relationship with McCarthy because mm. I thought No Country for Old Men, because actually it's a really childish book with its infatuation with violence. And actually the fact that it was so childish meant, of course, that the Cohen brothers were absolutely the right people to adapt it with their permanently adolescent take on the world. Cormac McCarthy, his, I suppose the reputation is much more, I can't think of the right word, writerly or something, and Lonesome Dove, especially, as you say, because of the TV series, which was huge. You say in the piece, it, it was viewed as kind of superior entertainment. Oh, that can't be as good because, to put it very bluntly, the writing is not as self-conscious. You, you talk quite a lot about that, don't you? 
Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And in some ways, I think it's a risk with any book that's made into a very successful film or TV series. In some ways, the book was kind of consumed by its adaptation. There were numerous uh, reasons to not bother reading it. I should also add that there was uh, another important fact in this. I became interested in it, partly because I ended up living in the southwest. I mean, further west than uh, McCarthy. I ended up in California. There was a kind of geographical as well as cultural reason for being drawn to it. But yeah, the moment came. When you did decide to read it, this is a horrible question, I apologise in advance. What did you find? Can you put 843 pages in a in a nutshell for us, please? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, one of the things is it was clearly not going to be a very self-consciously uh, literary experience. But I really want to emphasise uh, something. that This didn't mean it was going to be a lesser experience. It was just going to be a different kind of experience. And in the piece, I just very passingly make the contrast with uh, Len Dayton's Bomber, which is a really unputdownable book. Once you've realised and accepted, actually, yeah, the writing and the characterization and this kind of thing are really not that great. But I mean, the book has an awful lot of other stuff going for it. But crucially, I never felt at all, not for a moment, that I was going to have to make some allowances for McMurtry's prose in order to have a great experience. It was just going to be a different order of literary experience to the one that I was used to having with McCarthy. And I think perhaps the way had been sort of cleared for me. I've got these this colleague at USC, and he's from Alabama, he teaches Faulkner, and every time I meet up with him, I come away thinking, you know what, I'm going to go and read Faulkner. Faulkner, of course, huge influence on on, uh, McCarthy. And I just can't do it. It's just impossible to me. And it turned out, actually, that Murtry's style of writing is a real antidote to that kind of very dense, baroque style of writing that Faulkner goes in for. And also, in some of his essays, Murtry talks about the reason why that Faulknerian style is singularly inappropriate for the the dry, flat American Southwest. I love that idea that you mentioned there. He said that prose must accord with the land. Some writers can occasionally get away, he says, with the Faulknerian density, but for the West, it does not work. So given the central thread of Lonesome Dove is a cattle drive, isn't it? And we're talking 2,000 miles from Texas to Montana. Does the prose modulate as he, as he moves with his characters through this, this varying landscape? Slightly, but there's a consistent functionality about it, let's say. And you never feel at all that, as you can do in Hemingway sometimes, that the range of experience that this kind of prose is capable of dealing with is limited. Because one of the things that McMurtry became well known for... Of course, there are plenty of Westerns, but what McMurtry had in his favour, his women characters were very strong. He he seemed to understand women. And the prose, you never feel limiting what can be addressed. And in fact, in some ways, I wonder if you would agree with this, there are times when it even gets close to that thing that I'm absolutely allergic to now, sort of magical realism. And I say that with some hesitation, because it never quite moves into that awful thing where the trees are talking to each other or anything (laughs) like that. 
there's a lot of people undergoing appalling conditions someone doing a, an appalling night walk and he feels like he might have been guided by someone's ghost but it's very gently done this is to bound up with the lyricism i feel like there's a couple of moments where they see montana and it looks kind of rather wonderful and they have these little small bursts of lyricism that they're allowed to have but in the midst of and and this is often wonder at the natural world isn't it but this is in the midst of as you as you say what the cowboys experience is mostly weather and geography all of this is absolutely right. Their job is incredible. It's a job. It's incredibly hard and all that kind of stuff. But the job involves uh, a very close relationship with weather and geography, the sky and the land. And of course, once you get into that kind of territory, then we're absolutely there in the midst of the sort of romantic response to nature. And you're right to mention as well that scene when one of the characters has this uh, awful walk back and feels like he's being guided by what one of the characters who's died a, a short while previously. Is there... Um... Is there a mournfulness to the book? I mean, the time isn't specified, is it? I don't, I don't think. But the Old West, we, we're talking, we're sort of drawing towards its end, I suppose. It had been a wild frontier of danger and opportunity since the 1600s, but we were heading towards the 1910s, is the vague sense, I think. I haven't read it, I should say. I'm just wondering what sort of stage Lonesome Dove is at. Is there that sense of decay, the end of the century? Is it a mournful book? The the title certainly sounds like it is. Well, I think there's a, there's an elegiac quality there, but I think one could do a version of Raymond Williams and the country and the city about this, where if you start looking, it turns out that elegiac quality, wherever you choose to first locate it, it turns out, oh, it was present earlier than that. If you think of, let's say, a, a Western, a film that is indeed set in the 20th century, you know, The Wild Bunch, that really is so elegiac. I believe that Lonesome Dove is actually set in the 1870s, but certainly the era of the cattle drives, was that was such a brief thing, just, just a decade. So, yeah, that feeling of elegy is very, very strong. And I think one of the great things is that McMurtry is always keen to be realistic about things. But one of the, this is something he talks about in one of his essays, that he thought he was writing a demythicizing account of, of, the, of the West. But it turns out that's almost impossible to do because the life that these cowboys lead, is, is it's very difficult not to feel elegiac about. Elegiac rather than nostalgic, by the way, I think. Yes, I was going to ask you about that because there is this constant tension, isn't there, that he, and as you say, he, he thought he was writing against the grain of that ideal. I read somewhere that he called the American West the phantom leg of the American psyche. But he, he found that, maybe especially after the TV, that people were saying, oh, how wonderful, I wish I'd been there. But like, it's appalling. Most of it, these appalling things happen time after time after time. Jeff says partly because of the landscape and what it evokes and and also the characters are so rich and full and complex and yet somehow familiar, especially the women. Do you think that's why, Jeff, that it, it actually turned into another one of the myths of the West? 
Yes. Uh, and also we can sort of take one particular bit of that. We can say, OK, yeah, the landscape is pretty wonderful. And the landscape is truly wonderful. And anyone who's been on a road trip uh, in the American West, let, let alone d done such a thing on horseback, that's an incredible thing to be immersed in, in this vast landscape. So that has compensations of its own. There's a real sense of being, I don't know, at one with your existence. And also that crucial thing of self-reliance, I think, which of course is such a big part of the American idea. The wonderful thing is that it's both mythical and real at the same time. And actually, perhaps I should bring this back to Stephen Harrigan again, because I went to hear this talk by him in Texas. And he said he realised very early on in the writing of his history of Texas that it was absolutely impossible to tell the real history of Texas without taking account of the myth. That is to say, the myth of Texas was a real part of the actual history of Texas. And I think that combination of qualities, the mythic and the documentary reality, are so tightly entwined in Lonesome Dove. You mentioned McMurtry's inheritance, his family and his formation. He was coming with first-hand experience of the people that he was writing about. Yes, he certainly was. But by the time he was writing, that he said that there was no doubt at all that in many ways uh, life in the suburbs was infinitely preferable to the hardships of being a cowboy out in the land. But as always, there's such a sort of subtle or, or thorough reckoning there's a wonderful passage in one of his essays where he says, I've met so many cowboys who were broken in spirit, physically broken by their work. But he says, I've never met one of them who didn't count it the most fantastic privilege to have enjoyed part of their life as a cowboy. And it's bound up with that huge American idea of freedom. And it's a sign of, I mean, that's, of course, an enduring thing, even if it's debased to the moment, uh, particularly in Texas, with one's freedom to not wear a mask. But uh, there is no question at, at all, that even though the work was drudgery, these uh, people did feel that they, they, they enjoyed some ultimate freedom in a way. And in terms of his family background, so as Theo says, he was intimately familiar with the situation and they were cowboys and, and ranchers, weren't they, in his family? But um, he didn't grow up with books. And at one point you say that the person who eventually discovers books, having grown up in a house without them, has the most privileged relation to literature imaginable. Why is that? It's to do with this thing of conversion, just as I've recently converted to, to McMurtry. There is just this wonderful sense of discovery of a teacher at school or, or whatever it is. In McMurtry's case, it was a box, I think, of 19 books that a, a cousin gave to him then this whole world opens up to you. And it's a world which maybe if you were in a house where you were like my wife, if you'd been reading, I don't know, Great Expectations from the age of 10 or something, it's just something that you take for granted. But that wonderful sense of discovery that occurs when you become a reader is really, really something. And, you know, it's something that one doesn't realise about the author of Lonesome Dove until you learn a bit more about him. He really did become... Uh, a very, very big reader. I mean, uh, they said that Coleridge was the last person to have read everything, but I reckon McMurtry, is, uh, he comes a close second. He sounds like a, a brilliant man, but there's, that's there's such a clear sense of the zeal of the con convert for him. You say, yes, few people have absorbed 
more literature than he has or acquired more books, but that wasn't enough. He has to convert other people to this absolute joy that he's found as well. So he's ended up filling not just his home with books, but his hometown. He's Archer. He's opened up bookshops. It's like some wonderful Western equivalent of hay, you know, a town <laughs> full of books, but it's a, a town where one person has this monopoly on all these different uh, bookstores. And it turns out also the range of his reading is really quite something. And in Walter Benjamin at the Dairy Queen, what a great McMurtry title that is, by the way. It's about his discovery of Walter Benjamin in, a, in the sort of town's D Dairy Queen shop. You know, he talks about this weird period after he'd had a, a serious illness when he couldn't do that thing that he loved so much, which was reading. He just lost the ability and joy in reading. And then he talks about the way that pleasure came back to him and the people the the, the two names that uh, really that are most important after that are really quite surprising Proust and Virginia Woolf not names that you, you immediately think of in the context of the of the American Southwest no that's the other end of things you might say isn't it um and can you tell us Jeff I know that you say you rather regretted that you read it before lockdown because it would have been the perfect thing to read in lockdown other than writing this splendid piece for us, which we're very grateful for. Does Lonesome Dove still have a pull on, and an effect on you? Well, yes, it does. Although one of the things, this is something I've, uh, I have converted quite a few people to it. So my wife, who wasn't necessarily drawn to it, she read it. I wish she hadn't in a way because I completely lost her for 10 days you know it was impossible to get a civil <laughs> word out of her when uh, yes know, they, it, it does is... have that effect I, I have to say I stayed up late for about a week I was completely knackered for a week because I had to <laughs> stay up late you say in your piece there's a particularly horrible bit when they're crossing a river and you say that you read it late at night you had to read quite a lot more to get past it and by chance I did the same thing because you couldn't just stop at that chapter and then go, OK, I'll go to bed, because it was so horrible that you have to move on a little bit and absorb it. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's so completely absorbing and it's so wonderful. And then, as always happens when you've had a big reading experience like that, on the one hand, you want to go on and, you know, let's read something else. On the other hand, it's a very, very difficult act to follow. Ha! Huh. But it's Larry McMurtry. And, and to an extent, it's an easy act to follow because he was such a writer of sequels and prequels. It turns out that there are another three volumes in the Lonesome Dove series. Lonesome Dove came first, but then I think he wrote either, maybe it's two prequels and one sequel. But I felt so, I felt so reluctant to read any of these other volumes because it was almost inconceivable that they could be as good as this one. So although I might get round to them at some point, uh, I haven't yet. What about you? Did you plunge straight straight on to a, to another one no i couldn't i could i can't it's the same i can't bear to in case it's not as good and also <laughs> i watched about two minutes of some of the tv and you can see that it's very good it's got an amazing cast but again i didn't want to watch the tv they're such strong characters that you have your own idea of them i remember watching the tv series or certainly bits of it dubbed into italian in the 90s it always seemed to be on reruns uh, on, on quite late or certainly later than I was supposed to be up. Perfect. <laughs> that was my first introduction. I, and I must say, reading your piece, Jeff, and now hearing you both talk about it with all the enthusiasm has really made me think I need to borrow your copy, Lucy. And I know, Jeff, you 
you bought a pair of cowboy boots at the end. I'm sort of worried to think what might happen if I actually read the book and and feel as enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, that's, that's right. The next time you see me, uh, who knows, I might be strutting around in full Western gear, you know, it's a <laughs> sort of typical middle age, midlife crisis, yeah. emerge from it as, a, as, a, as an English cowboy. Till then, though, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you both. That was a great pleasure. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. in the context of civil rights history, more likely than not, you will picture Martin Luther King Jr. dressed in a sharp black suit standing on the steps to deliver his I Have a Dream speech to the crowd of 250,000 odd people taking part in the March on Washington in 1963. Not so many people will picture Marian Anderson about 24 years earlier, standing in the same spot wearing a fur coat over a blouse with big gold buttons almost military-like, it seems, in retrospect, to sing before a crowd of 75,000. Anderson, because she was black, had been denied access to the stage she wanted to perform on in Constitution Hall, DC's central concert facility run by the Daughters of the American Revolution. And so the stage moved. A nation's customs and the institutions that pandered to it were, predictably, less adaptable, hence Martin Luther King Jr. a generation later hence the protests taking place around the world right now. Carol J. Oja has written an essay for us this week commemorating Marian Anderson's performance, setting it in its context, the who and the why, as well as placing it in the longer story of the battle against the segregation of public spaces in America. Carol Oja joins us on the line from rural Maine now in a thunderstorm, no less. Hello, Carol. Hello to you. Hello. I hope we managed to have this conversation without too many dramatic effects. Let's set out the players in this clash. Perhaps the first thing to point out is that Marian Anderson in 1939 was a major star, wasn't she? Indeed. She had conquered the stages of Europe and the United States. She was the reigning diva of the day in, in many ways. 
the press attention must have been considerable. Before we get to the antagonist and the, the documents that you mined for this essay that you've written, can we get a sense of how the build-up to the event, what, what that was like, the event itself, how it was covered in the news and how it was received by the American public at the time? Well, the press attention, once she was denied access to Constitution Hall in January of 1939, and then the concert took place in April, as you've just mentioned, was considerable through that several-month period. And provoked in part by her manager, Saul Hirak, who was the person who had made the request to use Constitution Hall and had been denied, and also organized in conjunction with Walter White and the NAACP, which very quickly had formed a Marian Anderson committee made up of prominent black attorneys, prominent civil rights figures, and a lot of intellectual and political energy was invested in this moment, and the press was a big part of it. Can I just ask quite a a basic question, Carol, about when she did do the concert, what did she sing? And was was it significant what she chose to sing? Well, the concert was on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. She walked onto the stage that had been set up there with her mother on her arm and wearing a mink coat and looking every part the major international classical music star that she was. The pianist was Klusti Vehenen, Finnish accompanist who had been working with her for several years, white, clearly. The scene was what you might expect in Carnegie Hall or even on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera House, which was then kind of in midtown of New York City, not at the Lincoln Center location where it is today. So it was very dignified. And the program that she gave started with My Country, Tis of Thee, My Country, sort of owning the nation as she began. She sang Schubert's Ave Maria. She sang a Donizetti aria that she performed over and over again throughout her career, which to me is just really interesting because there was no chance of her having any kind of a career in opera. And, and yet singing this aria and other opera arias was part of what she traditionally did. And then she ended with a cluster of uh, spirituals, African-American spirituals, all in concert arrangements, mostly by black composers. Before speaking to you just now, I was, I was having a look online and you can find a video of the recording and just the sound of 75,000 people applauding and roaring for her. It, it really makes your skin tingle. It's an amazing film, yes. So the concert was broadcast over the radio, and then this film was made as well. And one of the things I find just touching, just gripping in the film, is when the camera pans the audience, and you see especially faces of African-American youth looking so excited and hopeful, sort of filled with pride. It's just all over their faces. That's remarkable. The antagonist in all of this is the Daughters of the American Revolution, the organization that owned the hall that denied Anderson access. What do we need to know about this group? It's a strange group with a quite strange history. Well, it's an organization of American women who trace their ancestry back to the Revolutionary War period. During the time of Anderson's concert in the late 1930s, the organization was completely white. In the late 1970s, they started to integrate somewhat. So they owned a facility, the facility Constitution Hall, which had opened in 1929. And an important thing to realize is that today, when we think of music performance in Washington, D.C., we think of the Kennedy Center, 
but the Kennedy Center did not exist then. So Constitution Hall was, as of 1939, the largest concert space in the district. And so as a result, the place that a major performer could give a recital. How representative of major institutions at the time was Constitution Hall in its policy? You mentioned that the Metropolitan Opera Company in New York, for example, had a a tacit whites-only policy till the 50s. That is a really complex question that I'm trying to get to the bottom (laughs) of. (laughs) It's intertwined with segregation laws and practices that vary not only from state to state, but from city to city and certainly from region to region. It's sort of a mess to untangle. In the case of of Constitution Hall, in 1932, they started inserting a white artists-only clause um, to the front page of their contracts, contracts that were signed by major performers and performing organizations for a couple of decades. Other important institutions in the United States, like the Metropolitan Opera Company, might not have had that clause in their contracts, but in terms of the practices that they had in place were tacitly whites only. Metropolitan Opera is especially egregious. It was Marian Anderson in 1955 who broke through the color barrier for featured singers on stage. There are so many details always in racism and segregation. There had been some white choral members on stage before 1955. There had been a major black dancer in the dance chorus. So things had been changing since around 1950. but in 1955, is, that was when the race barrier fell fully with the Metropolitan Opera. It was then 75 years old. So there it was in New York City, the place seen as a bastion of liberal, open-minded behavior, the place where any artist in, in the world, basically, as of the 1930s, needed to have a presence in order to have a, a major career. And I suppose the details, the kind of the ins and outs and the fact that it wasn't always as clear cut, you say it's complicated. That's what really comes to the fore in these recent documents, these documents that you mine for your piece. They show that there was no real unanimity in the decision that the the daughters took. There was a lot of infighting behind the scenes. That's correct. So the The documents that I write about were saved by Sarah Corbin Robert, who was the president general of the Daughters of the American Revolution during the Marian Anderson episode. She held on to her personal and professional archive, passed it on to her son, and a couple of years ago, her son gave it to the Daughters of American Revolution, and they now have it in their archive. And those documents give a sense of an organization that was not united behind her in refusing access to Marian Anderson, but instead there was a lot of protest, um, a lot of concern about racism, concern also just simply about how bad this looked for the organization. So concern in multiple directions, but the ruling board of the organization and Corbin Robert herself stuck with their whites only clause, stuck with the practice that they had in place and just rode the waves of this major episode and it was rough going for a lot of the time. And Sarah Corbin Robert, who is the person who saved the documents and did the archiving, she has a rather complicated and interesting family history herself that you found out, didn't she? She does indeed. So there she was, someone upholding segregation so rigorously in 1939. And it turns out that her husband's grandfather 
was named Joseph Robert, and in the mid-19th century, he was an abolitionist in the South, a minister and a physician who ultimately ended up being one of the people credited with, with founding uh, Morehouse College, which is one of the most prestigious of the historically black colleges and universities in the United States. So it's ironic beyond belief, actually, to have that sort of family background and then to have been in the position of moving in exactly the opposite direction as Corbin Robert was in 1939. And you could say, well, what did she know of the family background? And perhaps she didn't know that much about her husband's grandfather. However, one of the family members, an earlier one, found wrote uh, Robert's Rules of Order, which is the primary book for parliamentary procedure. So family history was alive within the Robert family and very much alive in terms of ongoing revenues from that publication, in terms of representing parliamentary procedure at various, in various ways around the country and issuing continually new editions of the book. So Sarah Corbin Robert was, there, there was a tie to her husband's family's past and whether or not she was aware of it, she did have this ancestor who was an abolitionist. It's one of those moments where looking back now, obviously, it seems like a very clear choice about which side of history to be on. It's not as though the organisation was not given plenty of opportunity to reconsider its position. Eleanor Roosevelt was a member, wasn't she? And she resigned over the ban. You'd think that the first lady resigning would, would have some kind of effect, and yet it didn't. But then the degree of racial antagonism, of outright racism, of white supremacist practices was so deeply ingrained that this is sort of norms that decisions were made on the basis of were, we can imagine them today because we're living with them to a certain extent, but they were more solidly in place certainly than is the case in the early 21st century. In, in terms of the documents that, that you mind, what are they? Are they sort of letters, meeting minutes? Well, there are a lot of materials in there. It's a considerable archive, and it includes a lot of letters, some typed, some handwritten, a lot of postcards. There was a major postcard writing campaign trying to support Anderson, and all those postcards, stacks of them, are in this archive. Yes, there were also meeting minutes from meetings of the board of the of DAR, there are flyers of various information campaigns that they had going. So it's, it's a mixture of lots of different materials. One of the things that has, was most striking to me is how upper class so much of it is. Many of these letters are written on fine stationery. The penmanship is clear and strong. The addresses are addresses of people who live in relatively affluent communities. And yet, here they are. They're not acting in ways that we today would consider exemplary in the slightest. Mm. You mentioned, for example, people writing in to say that they agreed or they disagreed, and some of them seem to do so by calling for equality no matter what or who, whereas others argue that Anderson should have been allowed in on a point of exceptionalism. And then obviously there are still others who take a much crueler line. Do you get a sense of a moment of tumult and disagreement? Yes, there was considerable disagreement. I think that part of the story has probably been submerged a bit. It, it, until these documents became available, it was hard to know the degree to which, behind the scenes, there were many within the Daughters of the American Revolution objecting to the decision that had been made and 
objecting vociferously. And as you just pointed out, the, the arguments could go one of two ways, either argue on, on behalf of Anderson alone, simply because she was such a major figure and a major talent, which is not the highest road to be on. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then some, however, also argued in, on behalf of civil rights overall, and the fact that, that this, this kind of policy was just unconscionable. Um, you're writing a book about classical music and civil rights. Where does this moment sit in that relationship? Can you give us a glimpse into the, the broader story that you're telling? Because I think classical music probably isn't the first music that springs to mind when we talk about civil rights. That's right. There's been very little writing about the subject. And my book is going to follow three moments in Anderson's career and use them as a way of talking about the institutional history that surrounds them. So the first is uh, in 1925, when she had her debut with the New York Philharmonic. It was in a summertime series at Lewiston Stadium at City College, an outdoor concert, which, and I believe that outdoor venues were somehow easier for whites to deal with initially in terms of desegregating concert life. So that was a major moment, and the New York Philharmonic, in turn, had a mixed history of integrating performers of color, and I try to follow that in my book. So there's that. There is the dealing with the Daughters of the American Revolution in 1939, and then with the Metropolitan Opera Company and Anderson's d debut there in 1955. And in the case of the Metropolitan Opera, looking back at the white supremacy that was behind many of its casting decisions. The Metropolitan Opera has an archive. It's in the basement of the Opera House in Lincoln Center, it's not particularly well funded or well taken care of, but there are a lot of materials there. And for example, they have a card file index of singers who auditioned over the years. So I've gone in with lists of African-American singers, and sure enough, there'll be a card for each one of them. And the person doing the audition will have typed in something like, not quite our type, slightly off tune. They're always very oblique comments, although at the top it will usually say colored singer, quote unquote. Mm. That sort of reminds me of one of the details that I found so intriguing in your piece and infuriating, how when Sol Horrock, Anderson's manager, first asked the daughters if they could book the stage, the daughters said, uh, no, sorry, it's already booked. And it was only when they were pushed to really, you know, show their cards, only then did they say, no, we can't, you can't have it ever. It's as though they knew that on some level, it wasn't okay. It was unsteady ground. Things were already changing and they were almost trying to avoid having to take that public stance because it was even then a kind of a, a potentially a public relations nightmare. Right. Well, it's a opaque exercising of power, which is what segregation was all about. Mm -hmm. So just keeping the rules shifting, keeping them unknown was one way to maintain that power and keep mm -hmm. people of, co of color out of public spaces. Well, then finally, I guess I'll turn a question on you that you put in your essays. What do we do with these painful histories of hate? And I suppose we here in that context as institutions, what, for example, has, has the Daughters of the American Revolution done? What should be done? Well, in the case of the Daughters of the American Revolution, they are making this archive open. They could have put it in a closet and they did not choose to do so which is really a courageous step. And it means that they'll have to deal with 
more publicity, quote unquote, more sort of mining of the details of their racist history. But it also means that there's a, a chance for openness and reconciliation and change. And in their case, they do a lot of work now with African-American school children in the Washington, D.C. area. They're trying. I don't know that they've found the best way by any means, and I'm certainly not saying any of this to forgive them because that history is pretty toxic. But for most of these major institutions, you know, acknowledging what that, that history is is crucial and then trying to find ways to be open about it and to involve the people who for a very long time were excluded to make them, them part of the current scene. Well, Carol, thank you so much for joining us. You've written a a fantastic essay. It's been lovely to talk to you. Well, thank you so much. That is all we have time for this week. All that remains is for us to thank Carol J. Oja and Jeff Dyer. Don't forget to pick up a copy of the TLS, whether in print or digitally. In this week's issue, you will find all of the pieces discussed on this show, as well as many others. I'm not prepared to put a number on it. We will be back next week, and who knows what we will be talking about. Now, though, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Goodbye.